This episode, we're back to Africa, where we're starting a whole new tour of the world, this time with a brand new theme. Last go-round, we brought you creation myths. This time, we're taking a look at LGBTQIA fairy tales and mythological beings. First up, the Shona people of Zimbabwe. And for our fact, well, actually, we're changing this one up a little bit, too. Remember, y'all, the only constant in this world is change. We got them sayings and mottos for days here on the Colored Folklore Podcast. Episode 8, Africa, Shona, Non-Binary Deity. Hey everybody, how goes it? What up? How you doing? Yo, my man, what it look like? However it is that you like to say hello, consider us saying that now. Thank you for listening to our little podcast where we visit the fairy tales and legends, the folklore and the myths of indigenous populations the world over. Opening the show as they always do is the London Collective All Good Folks with their track, Mr. Mischief, and our art team comprises Arthur, who fashioned our snazzy logo, and Jacqueline, who wrangled us our jazzy podcast cover artwork. Thank you, one. Thank you, all. Truly, the show could not exist without y'all. Me? Now that's a whole other story, my friends. I am the weakest link of this super talented creative team, your host, Gree Omenma, looking to introduce you to more folk tales and fables because I don't think the world could ever get enough of some good stories from ancient Civ. Last week, we were in the Middle East, taking a look at the Zoroastrian religion for a mega-deep creation tale, which rounded out our first world war. We're back in Africa now for our next episode, and this time around, I want to take a look at LGBTQIA-centric myths and fairy tales. Now, before we get started, I would like to let everyone know I am sorry. This will be a series of well-researched podcasts, However, I will not get everything correct. For instance, the call letters. When I was younger, these were not widespread. And then when they were, I feel like it started off more just uh, LG, then LGBT, and then LGBTQIA, and then LGBTQ2+, and it's changed a whole host of times, and it's still evolving. In fact... Everything that I just said, I'm sure it could be disputed by someone who knows more than me and is plugged in more than I am. I am not trying to discount anyone. I'm not trying to box anyone into the corner. I hope that my designation of LGBTQIA isn't uh, exclusionary. And please, as always, holla at me if you have any thoughts or comments or suggestions Anything that's constructive and might be able to help me do better and just be better. I have tried to take a dive the world over and find either a goddess or a story, an object or a situation that might fit into the community. And I think that I've been able to do that for each of our sections of the earth that we'll be taking a look at. What has been invaluable to me doing this has been Castle's Encyclopedia of Queer Myth, Symbol, and Spirit, authored by Randy Connor, David Sparks, and Maria Sparks, published by Connor, Sparks, and Sparks. 
so many times in the early days of this this particular tour concept. I found this encyclopedia being referenced, so I was finally able to just get one from my school, and it's provided me with wonderful references, and sometimes even the basis of what I use for the episode. This week, we're jumping into the Shona people of Zimbabwe, of which Jacqueline, uber shout out for kicking that butt on today's cover art. I gave her the story, some Shona reference shots, and what I was looking to do, and she delivered with what we both agree is one of our favorite pieces that she's done for the show thus far. Now to get right into that Shona sweetness that I was talking about, they're probably the largest indigenous population we've talked about so far on the show. They come in just about 27 million people as of 2019, living primarily in Zimbabwe, Africa. About 57% of the Shona population resides there, or about 15 million people, with 5 million people living in South Africa, and the rest of the Shona living in Botswana, Mozambique, Zambia, and the United Kingdom. The Shona people are further divided into tribes. The Karenga are the southern Shona. Zizuru are the central Shona, and Korekore are the northern Shona. Two additional tribes are the Monika, or eastern Shona, and the Indau, which have a very different dialect than other Shona. One interesting thing to note is that the very term Shona was invented during the Mefakane, which is a whole podcast series for another day. But for now, we'll just call it a time of great unrest, to say the very least, between the indigenous populations of southern Africa. It's said that the Indibele king, Milakazi, founder of the kingdom that would one day become Zimbabwe and one of the greatest African military leaders in history, gave the Shona their modern-day name after, of course, conquering them. Prior to this, it seems that Karenga, if you'll remember one of the tribal names, the Southern Shona, is one of the names that was used to describe the Shona people in full. Things, as they tend to do, get a little murky, because as you know for long-time listeners of the show, we don't like to call people by the names given to them by others, rather the names that they call themselves. Now see, the murky part is, this doesn't seem to play into modern-day Shona. Languages, and as I'll get more into in a second, specific regional dialects, vary widely between the groups. Kalanga and Karenga are both Bantu languages spoken by the Karenga, as well as others, throughout Eastern and Central Africa. Both of these languages have similar words, but they're different languages than each other, as well as different from Shona itself. That took me 10 minutes just to properly originally identify, because Kalanga and Karenga also have different words that name their language. Basically, I'm saying I apologize to, to all of the Shona everywhere for just butchering your introduction. I'm very sorry. Their history and origin takes us back to the 11th century, where kingdoms were first coming together on the Zimbabwe Plateau. A great kingdom was taking root, the Kalanga, which would last for the next 500 years. This was then the beginning of a great shuffling of power that lasted basically all the way to the modern day. We have the Torah dynasty, then the Mutapa Empire, followed by the Razvi kingdom, destroyed by the Ndebele, raised by the Portuguese, taken over by the British, all leading to the Bantu migration, also another whole podcast series in and of itself. Now, if this sounds simplified, it's because it is. 
There is literally a thousand years of history taking place over maybe an entire fourth of the continent, whittling the land and the people down to one country. And some of these events were happening at the same time. So I do not mean to denigrate or to demean or to diminish any of the people or cultures affected by these events. One constant, regardless of the era, is that the Shona are artisans of another level when it comes to things such as sculpture and music. The Ngoma drums and the xylophone meets harp-like mbira are two of the more important musical elements to traditional Shona music and can come in various sizes and are played in a number of ways. Shona sculptures have been found that date over a thousand years old and were made out of varying types of rock, conveying everything from animals to humans to spirits to even more abstract pieces, which I absolutely love. Additionally, the Shona people have a beautiful religion that centers around Muari, who is the subject of today's episode. Now, with our upcoming seven episodes, I'm going to do a little direct reading slash quotation here to give you an immediate sense of who it is that we're talking about. According to the previously mentioned Encyclopedia of Queer Myth, Symbol, and Spirit, the entry from Muari is as follows. Among the Shona people of Zimbabwe, the androgynous supreme being and creator who sometimes splits into female and male manifestations. Though brief, it is a wonderful description according to the sources that I've found. And I know that it sounds like it, but this is not the Shona creation myth. That's another cool story that will need to be saved for another day. I repeat, watch as the world comes into being, but also remember to just let go. Because there are other worlds than this. Yes, that was a deep cut. Once, very long ago, there was a white stone, and it was falling, turning round and round, over and over again. The white stone was falling at a great speed. But it was not alone. It was falling alongside Musicovano. Musicovano was the first living creature, the first sentient being, and had been put into a deep sleep by the Creator. Muari. Muari was the supreme deity. God of fertility, goddess of the rain. Muari is both male and female. Muari, as a female, is representative of the water, of the mysterious depths, of the life-giving hydration. She rules over all that is below. Muari, as a male, is representative of the sky, of the boundless light, of the life-giving air. He rules over all that is above, whether it is a star in the sky, lightning on the horizon, dew in the morning, or an ocean at night. Muari is everywhere, and Muari has decided that it is time for Musicovano to awaken. Fluttering his eyes open, the first thing that Musicovanu saw was the stone. 
and the first thing that he heard was the creator telling him to point at the stone. When Musikuvanu did, suddenly the stone stopped. Curious, Musikuvanu altered his path and drew closer to the stone. However, the closer he got, the larger the stone appeared. First, it was the same size as he was, yet he seemed to be no closer. And then it was five times as large, yet still he came no closer. Larger and larger the stone became, until it was all that Musikuvanu could see in front of him. Gently slowing down, Musikuvanu felt himself softly touch the stone with his feet, where an immediate spring burst forth, bubbling water all around him. Musikuvanu walked all over the stone, in all directions for as long as he could before he started to get tired. With the light slowly fading in the sky, he sank to the ground and lay there before closing his eyes. Falling back into a deep sleep, this time he dreamt of many things. In his dreams, he saw many animals bounding alongside of him on land, and he saw many birds flying above him in the sky. When light began filtering through his eyes, he woke to find that all he had envisioned in his dreams was now alive and all around him. Muari spoke to Musikuvanu and told him that soon he would grow hungry. And when he did, he was only allowed to eat the food that was grown, not that was born. He could obtain vegetables in the ground or from bushes, fruit and nuts from the trees. He was strictly forbidden, however, to take the lives of any creature for any reason. Additionally, the animals were not allowed to harm or eat each other as well. All that was needed for life was already provided by the Creator. After quite some time living this way, Musikuvanu was sleeping when a snake slowly approached him. Unlike other snakes, this snake possessed wisdom along with other unknown abilities. This snake slithered alongside Musikovanu's sleeping body. It weaved in between his legs for quite some time before it left Musikovanu for the night. When Musikovanu awoke, there was a strange feeling coursing through his veins. Not knowing what was happening, he stood and felt his pulse quicken, his heart race and an indomitable itch between his legs. A voice, seemingly from nowhere, told him slyly that he should head towards the water, that this would help to ease his pain. Making his way to the water the best he could, Musikuvanu was shocked to find an animal unlike anything he'd come across. This creature looked very much like him. Only... She was different. Approaching this young woman, Musikuvanu saw that she was sitting there, but wasn't reacting to anything. The voice told him to take her hand, which he did. The young woman gasped out loud and jumped to her feet. Both her and Musikuvanu were so enamored that they did not notice the snake weave itself away from her body exactly the way it had with Musikuvanu. Before long, she was overcome with the same emotions and physical sensations as Musikuvanu. And together, 
they discovered what it was to be human. The voice spoke one last time and told them both that they were partners, that they should be kind to one another, be kind to the animals and to the land, and set one full day out of every thirty in honor of Muari. The voice said with an obvious but indeterminate inclination, as long as they did all of these things, everything would be just fine. From that point forward, the first human beings did as they had been instructed, and all was well. Building themselves a family, and then a community, they taught their descendants to honor each other alongside all other living creatures, to honor their land, and to honor Muari. When it was time for both of them to join Muari, to leave this stone for the heavens, they had their children and their children's children repeat back to them one last time what was expected of them, what honor truly was. Humans lived this way for a very long time. Everywhere there was peace, everything was honored, and everyone was well. But once humans discovered alcohol, things began to change. Emotions and behavior grew unchecked, first boisterous, and then prideful, and then angry and disrespectful. One human even began lording their power over the rest, commanding animals and humans alike to serve them. They boasted that Muari was dead. There were no gods, no goddesses. They were God, and all humans should bow to them. Muari tried to warn the humans of their behavior, but it was too late. Their pride made it so that they could no longer hear the voice of Muari. Full of sadness, Muari cursed creation. Turning the water to salt, turning the land to desert, turning the vegetation to thorns, Muari sent a great rainfall that washed most of the humans away. This is when crocodiles first appeared throughout the land, and animals began to prey on each other. The sun scorched the land. Animals began to hunt humans, and the stars wept for the future of creation. Finally, fearful and shamed, instead of learning from their lesson, human beings turned farther away from enlightenment and finally began to kill each other. With this, Muari turned away in disgust, and humans were left on their own. And, according to the Shona people of Zimbabwe, Africa, that is just one of the stories of a non-binary supreme deity. Now, what I'm going to do here on out is not talk about things that I would have done with a tale, or what stuff didn't necessarily age all that well, or the stuff that worked the work, according to me. I've never meant for this segment to be a uh, bit of indignance or a breath of 
presumative soiled air. And after taking a look back at some of the episodes in the first world tour, I realized how this bit might uh, be coming across. Hey, let me sit you down right quick. We are all adults. We know that humans 5,000 years ago aren't the same as they were 500 years ago, as they were five years ago, right? So I think I'm going to pass on being like, oh, this tale was garbage because when looked at through the lens of blah, 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 blah. Now, don't think that I'm giving these motherfuckers a pass because I'm not. I want you all to know there there are a lot of garbage human beings, past, present, and future. We we were shown that in uh, in today's myth. People forever ago knew that one day somebody was going to wreck stuff for everybody else. Also, if anyone wanted to revisit episode one or episode two, I ain't going to be mad at you. I just wanted to point out that you will see uh, the podcast was initially going to be a modern take on myths where you would have different characters voiced by Mua, uh, some modern sensibilities, and pop culture references, some dated, some maybe not. But I found out through the beauty of analytics that sticking primarily to the myths is what people were digging on. So there's, there's no need to go over what I would have done. I didn't do it. And that's what what matters. There's no need to waste everyone's time going over my dumb ideas. So what I will try to concentrate on here on out is my favorite part. That's it. And it's not exactly like my opinion matters, but I'll use my thoughts as a jumping off point. Because, number one, it's uh, my show, so sit down and shut up. And, number two, I'll give you a topic... Discuss amongst yourselves. What was that about dated pop culture references? Anyway, so for today's show, what did I like the most? Hmm. Actually, you know what? I already went over it. The way things came together. The end. It's always someone out there going to mess stuff up. For real. When I was younger, I had an amazing drafting teacher. And... He told me about what happened when the drinking age was bumped down to 18 years of age in the good old U.S. of A. According to his uh, real-world example-slash-story, he said that a few people, in his estimation, like 10% or so, acted a fool, effed it up for anyone else that could drink at 18 and be responsible. And so the drinking age, at least in the States, became 21. Again, that, uh, that story was sparked in my mind in regards to today's myth because it's a system. It's a system that has to be built that way. Something is given to people, some fools screw it up, and it's taken away. That is a tale as old as time. They show it in this myth, but... But... Can I get a record scratch? There it is. But... See, I put away childish things. And by that, I mean, I'm not sure anymore if this punishment theory works. Hear me out. This is the concept that punishment works better than existence, let alone a reward. I feel like by now there is ample evidence that reward-based learning works better than punishment. 
I mean, so 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 let's dig deep. What's what's really the true uh, scare or like the worst thing that could happen on reward based learning that those approximate ten percent won't be punished? Think to yourselves real fast. How many people do you know right now that should be punished that are not? Mm. Besides, how screwed up is the punishment model, really? I mean, I know this is a slippery slope. I'm not saying never punish anyone for anything. Don't twist my words. What I'm saying is, does it make sense, in essence, to punish 100% of a population for the behavior of 10? That in my slightly gained wisdom as an adult, just don't make sense. There's a lot more to human psychology, to, oh goodness, so many metrics, but just maybe start turning your mind around. That's all I'm saying. If you feel like you're doing right, you're taking care of yourself, you're taking care of your family, you're taking care of your household and your community, there you go. You're good. Do the best you can. Don't hurt nobody else. Try to help society the best you can. And you ain't got to worry about nobody else. Thank you, Mwari, very much. Of which, did anyone pick up on the number of universal themes in today's myth? When has anyone ever heard of a giant flood story? Or, or of the first human couple populating the planet? Or a scheming snake giving these two humans a little bit of a nudge? Yeah, I like the snake in this tale because it wasn't cartoonishly villainish. It was simply like... I don't have to do anything bad. Y'all gonna do it to yourselves. <laughs> oh, it's too true, baby. It is too true indeed. And for our fact, we're jumping up on Out of That Lore and giving you a little bit of the folk. Our theme these next seven episodes is the LGBTQIA community. So let's introduce you to some of that community. To set this scene, we're gonna ask the question, what might be the first time that LGBTQIA themes were recorded on the African continent? To be frank, some of the first terrible occupiers that were to plunder this continent way back in the day were the Portuguese. There are a number of documents where they point to a full range of gender identities and relationships, and as we are all too painfully aware, these are not kindly worded documents. A sample of some of the relationships that can be found throughout the continent include, but are in no way limited to, gay relationships for the people in what is now Gabon and Cameroon and Ghana. In the land that would eventually become Madagascar and Ethiopia, there were transgendered Africans. And in Sudan, there were polygamous households where both gay and lesbian relationships were commonplace. In South Africa, men being attracted to other men had its own designation, as did friends who simply liked to masturbate together or each other. Same-sex relationships have been documented in Egypt and Benin, and lesbian relationships can be traced to almost three dozen cultures, from Kenya to Nigeria to beyond. So that gives us a, a good starting place, right? The origin? I mean, it's got to be around the... Uh, the 1600s, around the time that things began being documented by Europeans? Not only is that silly, it's not even close. Because documentation began a whole lot earlier than that, as in tens of thousands of years earlier. Cave paintings in none other than Zimbabwe, 
show men having relations with other men, cementing a diverse range of African relationships and identities. One particular human that we would like to focus on here is Queen Njinga Mbande, the woman who would be king. Born in 1582 to the ruling family of the Mamundu people, she was trained in warfare and in diplomacy as a child and to help ease tensions between empires, eventually became an ambassador to the Portuguese. Participating in official meetings, war councils, rituals, and battles, she helped her father, the king, who had inherited a war with the very same Portuguese. She would eventually come to rule her land, but not until after facing a series of crazy misfortunate events worthy of a Hollywood franchise. She survived the death of her father, her brother's death under mysterious circumstances, the Portuguese doubling down on their war, traitors who would rather side with slave traitors than serve under a woman, and a ruling aristocracy that continuously challenged her legitimacy to the throne. Once established, she decided to put the matter to bed once and for all in the 1640s, when she became a man. This practice has been seen with other female rulers in Africa in order to maintain their power. However, Njinga was in a class by herself, undergoing what was considered masculine pursuits unbecoming of a woman at the time. She personally led her troops into battle, took female wives as well as male wives, wore both feminine and masculine attire depending on her mood, and would only answer to king at the time, a purely male title. Rumors abound about her also having a full harem of men that she kept dressed as women, but we'll leave her bedroom proclivities for another podcast. This woman, this badass human, this Nubian queer king, is our fact for the episode. And my new hero. I highly recommend looking her up and checking out more details about her life. She is truly inspiring and fascinating. And that's the show, folks. Thank you, thank you, thank you for checking out our podcast as we took a look at the Shona people of Zimbabwe, Africa, and their LGBTQIA-friendly deity, Muari. Please join us next time as we make our way over to South America, where we'll be visiting one of the world's most famous OG ancient cultures, and their godling, the young Prince of Flowers. Much love, many thanks, all appreciation goes out, as always, to all good folks and the bookend to this podcast, which is their song, Mr. Mischief. Thank you, Jacqueline, for our podcast cover artwork, and thank you, Arthur, for our podcast logo. If you, as the audience, the most crucial part to our whole artistic being, if you have a question or a comment or a concern, or all three, Shoot us an email at info at coloredfolklore.com. And if email's not your bag, you're, you're more of a, a social media person. Check out our accounts at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. There's more. We promise. We promise we'll be posting more sometime this decade. We're at them all. Same handle. Colored Folklore, all one word. And if you curse email and disdain social media, I feel you. Then head on over to the one-stop shop known as the website of this podcast, www.coloredfolklore.com. I 
Forgot to call out the website by name last episode, but here it is for all of yous not in the nose. Hit up our ally page for the Friends of the Show episodes to check out all of our previous shows. And support. If you might have a moment, see how you could help support the show. Or, better yet, help out groups, peoples, stories. You know, the community. Or, best, best yet, better than all the above. If you get the chance, tell someone about the show. Leave a rating. Leave a review. This, this is your call to action. If you could just tell one person about this new, incredible podcast that you're listening to that you just, you can't live without, we are sure that the amazingly talented, wonderful women who run that show would love it and appreciate it, and they absolutely deserve it. So if you have the chance to then shout out a second podcast, maybe that might be us. Ha <laughs> See what we did there? Inclusion through coy, emphatic misdirection and witty self-deprecation. Get some every time.